Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. You're listening to 3 R. if you haven't worked it out yet. This is a science show we've got for you now for the next hour. In the studio with me today is Dr. Ray. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to see you again this week. Nice to we've see seen... you twice. <laughs> well, no, we've been hanging twice out this week. in one week. That's, that's good. That's, three times might be too much. But... Yeah, yeah, give yeah. away. Yeah. Give away. Dr. Linden, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. I think you two said that last time. You've got a little monthly coffee date going uh, on. We were hanging out at the university. Yeah. Oh, okay. What can I say? We, uh, we spent some time together, some quality <laughs> yeah. time. I'm quality. glad to hear it. <laughs> quality time. <laughs> Dr. Stacey, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? You uh, rushed in here. I right? did. Yeah. I really Just in need, the nick to, of time. need to leave a little bit earlier these You're days. You're traveling a bit, though. So I am. Oh, I, uh, it's a good opportunity to listen to the radio on the way in. I was yeah. listening to the doctors in uh, radiotherapy. I was up your way last night. I had dinner in Woodend. Oh, at a beautiful restaurant that has a good outdoor dining area. I will say I had to rug up. Oh, yes. <laughs> it was oh, a bit chilly. chilly up but it was there. great, great food and, you know, yeah. no no concerns at all. So it was really, um, yeah, nice, but freezing. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I had my snow, snow jacket. So anyway, we're going to jump straight into the news. We've got a big show for you today, folks. We've got a guest from Swinburne University. We're going to be talking about, well, Mining on the Moon, I guess, all sorts of cool stuff like that. And a little bit later, we've got a special guest from Triple R coming on to talk about her new book, Oh, big surprise. Stacey, let's start off with your news. What do you got for us? Yeah. So, um, you know, I was looking at um, some news items that came out this week, looking at video conferencing um, and our sort of productivity in the workforce. This is a pretty hot topic in the last couple of years. Mm. Um, Obviously, the COVID pandemic has accelerated our shift to remote working and normalising, you know, working from home and and particularly using video conferencing facilities. Um, And it's been a global phenomenon, of course, like we've had millions of employees mandated to work from home. And basically, it's demonstrated the viability of virtual work. Uh, at a yeah. large scale. Which many of us have been saying for decades. Yeah. That you, you could do that. Yeah. But, but there was always this feeling, no. Yeah, that's You're right. You're slacking off, you're going to the cricket. Yeah, that's right. But it, it didn't really eventuate <laughs> didn't like that, out. did it? Yeah. No. Mm. We've been pretty um, productive and effective. And so, you know, two years on, we've had surveys um, that have found that people are very interested in continuing to work from home. Um, and then one survey in the US, US suggested that people are interested in at least 20% of their working week um, potentially being work, um, being take, taking place at home, even in that post-pandemic era, uh, when, when that happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, so regardless of individual preferences, um, companies are quite rightly interested in the impacts that video conferencing may have on productivity. And so video interactions are obviously very different to in-person meetings. So, you know, when we're physically in in the office space, um, we're sharing that uh, physical space with our colleagues, whereas on video conferencing, we're really bounded by that just teeny tiny screen. Mm. And then even sometimes people like blurring out their background, so you can't even really see into their physical space. You can only focus on your your colleagues. But a new study published in Nature this week um, has explored the impacts of virtual interaction versus in-person interactions. Um, And essentially, um, they conducted a series of experiments that were able to demonstrate that video conferencing with work colleagues is less conducive to brainstorming and idea generation. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so they looked at uh, they had about 600 participants. They were randomly paired, and then there were half of them had to in, um, work in person, and half had to work uh, online. And they were asked to engage in the generation of creative uses of a known product. So the example they that they talked about was, um, you know, think of all these other uses that you can use for a frisbee or something like that. So people had to get really creative, you know, use it as a plate. I don't know. They were sort of random create, creative ideas. But what they um, found was is that the people that were interacting virtually produced significantly fewer ideas than the in-person pairs. And then what they did is also track eye gazes during the um, in-person and the, and the video conferencing. So when we're in person, we're actually like darting around. Looking and, around. Yeah, we're yeah. looking at our in, our surroundings. In video conferencing, you're just like so focused on on the participant opposite you. But that um, those data together supported the hypothesis that in-person meetings support divergent thinking. So you you want mm. people to be creative and thinking and and looking at their at their context around them. And then the virtual communication really narrows your focus and therefore it hampers ideas generation. So although um, interestingly like virtual communication helped with um, improving decision quality. So when you wanted to select your top idea and focus in on, you know, I don't know, developing developing that particular one idea further, it was better in the virtual meeting, right, because you, people are focused. So that sort of, again, um, focuses, you know, um, de- demonstrates that, you know, a focused field of vision is, is really helpful for decision-making. Mm. So, yeah, I don't know, it was a good little um, ditty. If you want ideas generation, perhaps um, schedule some yeah. time in the office. And, and it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it, though, because I think there's a, there's a falsehood in those, in those studies that really needs to be called out, and that is... It'd be like me saying, you know, being on television is better than being on radio. And it's like, well, if I use the exact same set of rules and techniques that I use on television on radio, it will fail. And and in the virtual sense with these meetings, it's the same. If you just duplicate the meetings as though they were in person and try and pretend it's the same online, they will not be as good. But if you design them specifically for the virtual space, just like we do with the radio comparison to television, you'll get very different results. And, you know, some of us have been doing this for two years and it took a lot of work. I mean, a lot of people teaching online spend a lot of time working very hard to make that adaptation. And I think if we put more time into that for some of these business things, I think they could benefit greatly as well. I mean, but but you're right. The, the, the story is correct in that if you mimic the same things yes. in the virtual world, they won't be as good. Of course they won't. Yeah, that's right. You know, We're just yeah. less adapt, adept at, um, yeah. you know, doing all of that brainstorming on, on video yeah. conferencing. But you, like you say, there might be other mechanisms that you could uh, employ when you're using that media that yep. that is conducive yeah. to generating new I ideas. Mean, I mean, I ran an event recently that had people from every, pretty much every state of Australia Involved, And I, I would argue that that wouldn't have occurred, especially family challenges, other things, had we tried to get everyone in this meeting for just two hours. That's, a, that's all it was. No one's going to travel for that. Yeah. But we managed to get a lot more in the room. So there's, there are other advantages yeah. that often we forget. And I think there's a lot of big corporations at the moment really eager to get everyone back into the office. <laughs> and I think that's part of the push here is proving that, oh, no, it's not the same, kids. It's not the same. Yeah. You won't yeah. be innovative. So Good counterpoints. Yeah. Anyway, sure. it's interesting to see this playing out, though. It's good that people are talking about it, I think, because that will change a lot. Dr. Linden. All right, I'm going to take us from sitting around at home working, focusing intently on Zoom uh, to outer space. I want you to imagine a bit of a scenario. Okay, there are a, um, a ship of astronauts and they're doing a 120-year journey out into outer space. I'm not sure exactly how far you could get in 120 years. How old are these people? <laughs> well, this is the thing, right? Okay, so... Yep. Um, 
And an astronaut wakes up 30 years into this 120-year mission. Her computer has failed and it's woken her up 90 years earlier than she's supposed to. I think to. I saw this film. Well, that's it, right? No, this is, this is not a plot from a film. This is genuinely an opening paragraph from Very a paper cool. that was published this week by a group of ecologists from Chile in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. That's a, their biology journal. And this, this group were trying to imagine what would happen, how feasible this would be, and what this astronaut might do if she wakes up and she realises she can't go back to sleep. She's got... How is she going to stay alive? And if she does stay alive... Is she going to doom all of her colleagues to mm. death by eating all of the resources that are on the ship? <laughs> Including them. Include, well, that was not... <laughs> well, I'm just saying. I'm that, just, yeah, it's possible. That was not covered in, in this. What was covered was looking <laughs> instead at the metabolic rates of different hibernating animals to see if we could get any information from that about uh, going into hibernation for long journeys. So there's a lot of research that's been done about getting bodies, you know, to cool right down, suspended animation mm. for uh, medical situations if you're under deep trauma or if you need a little bit more time to operate on somebody so they don't die. There's a lot of work that's been done about that. But this study was thinking about the long-term period of time. And so what they did was look at a data set of the metabolic rates of about 50 different animals that hibernate, so very small ones up to black and brown bears. Mm. So these are largely mammals. I think there was one bird, but the black and brown bear, they're the largest mammals that hibernate. And they found that the, the metabolism of a cell of a hibernating bat is about the same as the metabolism of a cell of a hibernating bear. Interesting. Even though the bear Very is... Very different size. Exactly. Yeah, Even though yeah. the bear is 20,000 times larger than the bat. And mm. so, from what I understand, what this suggests is that um, the, the energy that this one alive astronaut or awake astronaut would use in a day is the same as the energy that 50 of her hibernating astronaut mates would use. Wow. And in terms of the yeah. amount of energy that you need for the rest of that 90-year journey, if you were hibernating, you'd need... Um, an extra 2.2 kilograms of fat per year, which means you'd need to be 204 kilograms heavier. So one of the headlines from because this this paper got a bit of uh, got a bit of media traction, I think, because it involves you know animals, but ethics. also space travel, yeah, yeah. but also ethics, but yeah. also do I you use know, the airlock or do I sacrifice my colleagues? <laughs> yeah, like but, it's <laughs> and it's the science fiction idea that people yeah, yeah. really want to know about as we start talking more and more about yeah. how we're going to get to Mars. Um, but one of the headlines was you got to be really fat if you want to go to space. Because astronauts are going to need to have if, excess if hibernation is the approach that's yeah. going to be used. Yeah, you're going to have to have that excess energy stored, that so you can, um, even though your metabolism slows right down, enough energy to to keep your body going. Which sounds like generational shifts might be more fun. So, sounds like what? Sorry? You know, generational shifts where you get on there, oh, you breed, and your kids yeah. finish the the deal. You know. So you you want like, some kind like of Star Trek scenario, Wally? Yeah. You, okay. <laughs> yeah. And they ended up really fat in Wally. They did. That's what I thought about when I read this paper. I'm like, oh, okay. So they were really chubby, not because they just sat around doing nothing, but because they were saving their bodies for mm. the future. Like they, yeah, well, that's, that's one way to go. There's, there's no reason we couldn't have the energy delivered through an IV. As opposed yeah. to yeah. having to gain hundred kilos. No, gotta kilos. be you've got to gain two hundred kilos, right? That's the only. That's the, yeah, only, it's the only way to get. It's yeah. The only way to anyway, get. it was interesting that I thought ecologists were looking at this problem and that they'd opened it with this space scenario to really capture 
capture people's attention. Yeah, I hope they've seen that film. <laughs> Surely there's more than one, right? <laughs> there's, well, there's, there's one more recent one. What's it called? Passengers? Passengers, yeah. Passengers, yeah. That ends up as an intergenerational film, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. Spoilers. Yeah, oops, sorry. Uh, Dr. Ray, what do you go for us? Uh, so, um, Dr. Shane, you've had, you've in the past have kept uh, large dogs. And I believe German Shepherds, right? No, no, uh, Siberian Huskies. So Siberian Huskies. Medium dogs. So, medium dogs, excuse me. You're right, because it's not. It depends on the range you're talking team. about. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we know different breeds of dogs by their look and shape. But you must have also encountered people would have seen your dog sometimes and immediately jumped to assumptions about its behavior. Oh, yeah. It was yeah. mean. In fact, I used dangerous. to put blood on the face of my <laughs> one of them for Halloween. And when the kids would open the door, I'd say, Pat Wolfie, he's already fed. <laughs> I'm joking, but, I'm yeah, joking yeah, about yeah. that, but, but I wanted to do that. I did but, want to do that. But, but there is this assumption about behavior with dog breeds where um, there was actually a, a really interesting study at the University of Massachusetts. In, it was the cover article in Science because it was pictures of lots of different dogs. I mean, mm. why wouldn't you put that on the cover of a scientific <laughs> journal? Because um, they're cute. But it, it was actually correlating or looking at whether or not behavioral characteristics really correlate with breeds. But how they did it was not just interviewing a bunch of dogs to find out if they were nice or mean. They actually had this fantastic thing called Darwin's Ark, which was an open data resource uh, platform for collecting owner-reported phenotypes and genetic data. And they surveyed 18,000 dogs. About half of them were purebred. And they did DNA um, measurements for about 2,000 dogs. And what they found was, yes, everything you'd expect that a Chihuahua and a, a, a Siberian Husky look different physically, um, can be associated with breed. But as it turns out, associating behavioral characteristics was rarely the tra- true for breeds. Um, that, and even when they did find characteristic, behavior characteristics that were associated with breeds, there was huge variability. And they're also not what you think. So, like, bitability, I love that word. It's, it's how well dogs respond to human direction. Mm. Um, Collies, apparently border collies, don't. they actually have a weekly – they don't listen to people that well, hmm. which is funny. I mean I grew up watching Lassie, which would have been like the opposite of that, right? Well, I think that was the people listening to Lassie though, right? It, it, good point. Yeah. Um, thanks for that. Um, but, <laughs> but, but, it all. but there was an awful lot of variability. And then there were ones that you know would also surprise you. Like <laughs> Labradors apparently didn't care about people. There's no strong correlation about human sociability for Labrador retrievers. They're just happy. Again, I shouldn't be associating behaviors mm-hmm. with, with a particular breed. But, um, but, I, but this, this gets further because there are behavioral traits that don't really associate with breed. And one that stands out was, um, I love the term, agnostic threshold. How easily a dog's provoked by fighting or frightening or by uncomfortable stimuli. So the things you might associate with bad behaviors in dogs really aren't correlated with breed. Mm. And and so what it comes down to is that, you know, you end up with certainly physical traits are correlated, but modern dogs only started about 160 years ago with modern breeds. That's more of a Victorian area thing. Before that, guards were like really bred for function, hunting, guarding, herding. But all of these different breeds are differentiated much later. And while it's certainly for size, obviously, if you want a Chihuahua or a German Shepherd, you're making a decision there about hair and pooper scooping. But... What, what it comes down to is that breed is not necessarily a great choice for behavior and that what they're really showing is, is not such a surprise that understanding interactions between genetics, ancestry, and behavior is way more complex. Mm. But uh, so, uh, it, 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 you know, it does mean that, you know, you could have a staffy that's lovely and a, 
and a, and a chihuahua that's you know a soul devouring vicious dog and that it has completely nothing to do... aligns with my experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> me too. And, and and no offense to all you chihuahua owners and lovers out there, but um, yeah, it, cool. it's a, I, and, and really it is a, it is a fun read to go read about the other traits they correlated. Interesting to. stuff. Triple R. In the studio with us now is Professor Jeff Brooks. He is a professor of engineering at Swinburne University of Technology. Jeff, it's been about a decade, I think, but welcome back. Thank you. It's really nice to be here. Nothing's changed very much, though. Oh, don't say that. We've, uh, there's been so much cuts of paint. Um, <laughs> they've all worn out. Now, we've got all sorts of stuff. Now we've got these giant HEPA filters in the room, and we're, you know, we're all, well, I've lost all my hair uh, since you were last in. I've gone grey. <laughs> there we go. Uh, now, look, I think uh, let's just recap some of you. I mean, some of your work has really been in the steelmaking industry over the years and, and how we sort of green that. Yes. Just give us a bit of an insight into how dirty that industry is. I mean, what's the deal well, with it's it? Well, it's about 8% of the world's CO2 generation. Right. Wow. And it, the, the positive thing to tell you is it is definitely technically possible to reduce the carbon level of making steel by about 90 to 95%. Mm. And we've already done it at quite large scale. So now it's about that whole economic transition and and there's quite a few scientific issues involved as well. But yeah, no, it's it's actually a lot of excitement in that area at the moment. Um, I don't think I can retire. I'm going to have to work for another 15, 20 years. There is so much work in that area. Actually, it's never been a better time to be a pyrometallurgist because of the incredible interest in trying to decarbonise metal production. So it's yeah. actually quite an exciting time. A pyrometallurgist. I love that phrase. I mean, I, I used to think walking into a pub and saying, I'm a hydrologist, which I wasn't. Um, yeah, but especially, you know, around the Brisbane floods, if you could walk into a pub and say, I'm a hydrologist, people would go, you're a rock star. Um, but a pyrometallurgist. Now, one it's, of the, one it's, of the, it's respectable pyromania, mate. Oh, it just, it just it rolls off the tongue. But uh, one, one of the reasons we got you in today was to talk about some of the really interesting studies and, and thoughts going on at the moment with regards to the return to the moon yes and i know whenever we start talking about mining the moon people start thinking i don't know about big trucks are they going to bring it back down to earth but i think that the real interest is not in that but it's in us being sustainable once we're up there so i mean what what sort of things are on the moon that would be of interest Oh, quite a lot. So the first thing is, if you think about it, it's the same challenges we have on the Earth. So first of all, we've got, we've got about to breathe, mm. oxygen. <laughs> we've got about to eat, food. Yep. And then once you get beyond that, you start thinking, well, how are we going to store and make stuff? So you start thinking about ceramics. And in our human history, we call that the Neolithic Age. Well, the <laughs> Neolithic Age is going to happen very quickly on the moon. Yep. So we're going to have to learn to make ceramics, say, for buildings and for launching pads and construction pavements mm. so bricks basically yeah bricks yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. and um i've got students studying brick making on the moon right now oh, wow. <laughs> and, and then the next level is well if we're going to make bigger structures we're probably going to use metals and if we're going to make equipment for doing things we're going to use metal so there's a, a really serious push going at the moment to uh to develop basically practical ways of making ceramics and metals on the moon mm. and it's also a big entrepreneurial space i spend a lot of my time speaking to some very entrepreneurial people <laughs> often in the states and you know they've got all sorts of schemes to put um, some quite serious equipment on these Artemis missions because yep. these Artemis missions are giving us the opportunity to take up quite a large payloads. And so mm. people are, uh, there is actually planned, serious plans to put like uh, a metal smelting equipment on the moon in 2026 to see about the prospect of making metal using the resources of the moon. Yeah. So and, this is real stuff. So it's and, very exciting. And presumably like like here on Earth, I mean, as, as we know, it's, it's not just about digging the stuff up. There's processing involved. So what about things like water? Yeah, that's right. That's a big issue. So we, 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 the, the, whole mineral pro, so the whole mineral processing part 
is really difficult because a lot of the techniques we use to concentrate mm. minerals involve using water. So up on the moon, we haven't got much else except gravity, which is reduced by one-sixth, right, so that yep. difference. But also one thing we do have is electrostatic charge. So there's a lot of particles on the moon that have a very high electrostatic charge. So that's one possible way we might be able to separate things. But in a general sense, Shane, mm. mineral processing on the moon is really challenging. Um, the, the, the melting, smelting side is... It's got some negatives and positives. So one of the positives is that it's got a high vacuum on the moon. It's an incredible vacuum. Yep. So that means, for example, if we get the, the regolith of the moon and we heat it up, iron will come off as a vapour. We can actually separate iron out as a vapour. So we can actually realistically recover iron just by heating it up, which right. on the Earth is not really a practical thing. Right. And it's to do with the extreme vacuum of the moon. And so that's the positive. Then on the negative, when, you melt, when, we, when we refine metals... Uh, we often have little inclusions or things in the metal that will ruin the quality of the, yep. st- of the metal. So what we do is we use gravity to separate it <laughs> and take away the material, but it's one-sixth gravity. So, so yeah. ha- that is not going to work as well. So there's positives and negatives about the melting, smelting stage, but yeah. the mineral processing stage, very challenging indeed. Interesting. Now, if I recall my sort of 55-year Apollo history correctly, most of the landing sites were equatorial, so around yes. the equator, I mean, but the, the new landing sites, as I understand it, are going to be more polar. Is, yeah. is there a sort of minerals reason for that? or Extremely good reasons for doing that. Yeah, so the first thing is, one of the things we've really learned in the last 15 years that we didn't know in the Apollos is that there is a, quite a lot of water in the poles. Mm. Now, the exact form of that water is open to debate but there is significant evidence that we have like water in some of the shaded areas around the poles the other thing also so that's really big because if you've got mm. water yep. obviously you can measure all the advantages of that um, but the other one also is that there are also areas on the poles that are permanently in sunlight so in terms of setting up solar energy for the full 28 days of the yeah. of, of a lunar a lunar day right um, then you can you know you could you can actually imagine having uh, running electricity the whole time which when you get to minus i want to remind your listeners it gets to minus 200 in some places up near the yeah, poles yeah. a little bit of heating will be valuable so so running the electricity for, through the the cold night would be a big issue so yeah the poles are more attractive Interesting. there are some people i'm not one of these enthusiasts who want to try to recover helium three from the polar regions right. because of the solar wind there's a lot of helium three um compared to the earth in the in the soil the regolith and uh, there are some people who've got some scheme to try and recover that. I don't think that's particularly practical, but that's also another reason why people are interested in the polar region. So there's a it's kind of a space race on to put a habitat and start start building looking, stuff. Start building stuff. So yeah. so what does it look like for your students? I mean, do, do you walk in? You make them suit up and then cover them in talcum powder and say work in this environment because there's a lot of dust and yeah. fine particles. I mean, like it's a real, in, in many regards, it's a pretty shitty work environment. Yeah, right? no, it's a very. So, it's a so very, what does it look like for the students? It's a very horrible work environment. And I should tell everybody. Uh, one of the biggest challenges facing living on the moon is the dust, as right. you alluded to. The dust on the moon is electrostatic and glassy right. from all nice. the meteorites. Yeah, yeah. Glassy, fine material that sticks to everything. Does that feel attractive <laughs> to you? Um, no, it's um, like a well, bad day at the beach. I, I try quite consciously not to get too involved with the, the large scale. I do all the, sci- the real scientific work. So, for example, we do things like I've got a brilliant student, Yuan Kun, at the moment, and he's doing understanding how much heat 
from solar energy, you can transfer into regolith. Right. And he's understanding how, you know, how, what depth of regolith you could center on the ground just using concentrated solar energy. So imagine a Fresnel lens and you're sort of firing it on the ground. Can you center the surface? So we can make a pavement. He's looking at you know the science of that. Yeah. And so, and my students, are, for example, the iron recovery thing. He's doing all the careful thermodynamics. So I'm doing the. There's a lot of entrepreneurs, and I think what we, <laughs> I feel like what we need is a bit more, very hard science. And and I'm coming from that like I'm an extractive metallurgist by background, right? So I'm not coming from that sort of you know space enthusiast stuff. I mean, I love space stuff, but yep. I'm not. I'm coming from the you know the the, the deep science of how do we. How do we make stuff? You know, mm. what's the physics of it? What's the chemistry of it? So that's the kind of stuff that so the students do controlled experiments. So, for example, at Swinburne, we have um, seven cinema lamps shining on one spot. And then we can duplicate uh, having really intense solar energy shining on one spot. And we put bits of material that are like regolith, like on the earth, in there under vacuum. And we watch how they behave as we heat them up. Wow. So we yeah. do those kind of experiments. Yeah, that, I mean that that just sounds like super cool stuff. I know uh, you know you probably saw recently they opened one of the final samples that had been stored under vacuum from the last Apollo mission um, with Gene Cernan, where you know they they basically drilled in, they they took a core sample and then they just sealed it up and kept it for fifty years because yeah. they knew we'd have better technology today, which is kind of cool stuff. Um, yeah, and, they've just, and they've just opened it up and they're starting to look at that, so they know what's going on. But in terms of the um, in terms of the missions going forward, I mean, how much dependency is there on this technology being available? And I remember that great speech from, from Kennedy when he said, you know, some of the materials we need haven't been invented yet. Yeah. Um, how much is that playing out for things like even going beyond the moon to Mars? Like how much sort of stuff have we not worked out yet in that yeah, sense? In, I, in the middle of the century? Yeah, no, there's quite a lot. For example, <laughs> um, I'm pretty confident. If, you said, if I put my hand on my heart and said, could we now center some regolith on the moon and make buildings out of it. Yep. Yeah, we could do it. That's yeah, cool. We can do it. <laughs> we can do it. Um, can we make some simple ferro alloys from the regolith? Yes, we can. Um, the quality of that metal mm. and whether um, – ferrosilicon, uh, if you make it on the earth, uh, tends to be quite brittle. Yep. And if you put a lot of dirt and muck in it, it'll be even more brittle, even more low quality. So I, I would say from a metallurgical perspective, making a good quality, reliable metal on the moon, no, that's something that's not clear. Yeah. And, we, and I think that's some years away. But it's not that far away. So that's the kind of stuff that gets me up in the night and makes yeah, yeah. me excited. Um, and, how are we going to do that? And, look, uh, Jeff, just before you go, what about um, the recycling of stuff that we take up? I mean, because obviously we're, we're using a lot of large rockets and engines and various things, and I know a lot of them come back and, you know, in some cases even land in a controlled way on Earth. But, but you know, on the moon, you know, we're, we're going to start littering the place pretty fast, um, uh, as unfortunately, mate, do. Unfortunately, we've, we're already doing we're a bad doing job. It, yeah. um, it's a very complex and interesting issue. There's about 200 tonnes of space junk sitting on the moon right now, apparently. Right. There was a very nice article done in Nature um, about two months ago detailing it. It's about 200 tonnes. People estimate about 150 tonnes of it is aluminium wow. because a lot of stage stuff is made out of aluminium. Yeah. So, good. We know how to recycle aluminium. So, actually, I'm a big advocate for one of the very first things that we try to make on the moon is just remelting the aluminium yep. because it's there, right? Yep. So let's, let's, let's stop littering and let's use it. Can I tell you that's a bit of a sensitive issue, though, because some of that 200 tonnes is actually deeply important archaeological sites yeah, from, yeah. The, from humanity's perspective, right? But there are some of it that is just junk that we can melt down. So I think that it's something we should do. I think something also there is at the moment lacking a really good 
treaty about the understanding of utilising resources on the moon. We have a general science treaty that everybody agrees to, but it's very mm. vague about things like mining and uh, recovery. Yeah. So, for example, like, you know, recovering the water from the poles, like I'm, I'm researching that area, but I'm a bit sensitive about digging up there because I think to myself, what do we know about the early forms of life that could be there or yeah. you know, what things are going on in that, in that part of the moon that yeah. we don't understand? So I think we need, a, I think we need some more impressive uh, laws about what that's going to do. Um, I think, unfortunately, what will happen is we'll end up doing stuff and then make laws afterwards. That seems yeah. what humanity does. Yeah. But, but I think definitely uh, we should start planning to recycle the stuff that's on the moon. Yeah. And it's actually it's quite sensible to do that because there's 200 tonnes of metal lying there. Why are we going to well start re- – yeah, why don't we use it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Look, and we know how to do it in Antarctica. We've been doing a lot of good stuff down there for a long time and as, as you know, the cooperation – down there was pretty good. Jeff, thanks so much for coming in. Uh, good luck with this work. It's it's really interesting, and it is a golden time to be uh, working in this space with so much space. Oh, so much I, this I, stuff. Um, yeah, really cool. incredible. And you, you get such great students in this area. Yeah, I bet. I, I really have fantastic yep. students. I envy you uh, your role there. Professor Jeff Brooks, uh, Professor of Engineering at Swinburne University of Technology. Thanks for chatting. Thank you. Three. Triple. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. And in the studio now, I'm very happy that Crystal Poli has come in, who's normally on Triple R a couple of hours, or what, an hour and a half from now. Yes. Welcome, Crystal. Good <laughs> to have you on again. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a... I, I think what's it been probably about five years since you were on the show. <laughs> Promptly, which is crazy. Cause yeah, it's been a while. It feels like it's just happened, and all of a sudden, it's like when time jumped into a, a pretty exciting future. <laughs> <laughs> Exciting, indeed. Um, now, I think the last time you were on, you were, you know, basically educating me on Indigenous astronomy because this was something that you know I never learned at school. I never learned anything about it at uni. I went. I remember being at one planetarium show where there was I don't know ten minutes of stuff that wasn't to be fair, and you know the planetarium I love, but um, wasn't as informative as I would have liked. And then you came in and, and educated me on, on especially some of the stuff around how how long information has been recorded for and stuff that we can now correlate with events that we, you know, sort of see in other areas of astronomy. And I was like, whoa, you know, this is stuff I didn't know. Fast forward to today, and you've written an entire new book with your colleague, um, Carly Noon. Carly yes. Noon. Sorry, I'm look. See, this is what happens when you go. Oh no! Don't worry. Carly. Don't worry. This is where I'm here. I've been learning her name for the last. <laughs> now, tell us how did this start? I mean, what what gave you the idea to put this book together? Oh, so. Um well, I, I guess, like, as, as you've highlighted for me, uh, my whole uh, science communication journey has just been about education. So mm. I didn't intend to become a science communicator. I just really, really care about this space. And I gave a talk, which then just absolutely, uh, like, butterfly effect. Like, it's like, I did one talk, and then everyone's like, please come speak at our school, yep. our library, wherever. And I'm like, of course I'll do that. And it just has escalated beyond anything that I can even comprehend. Um, and so with the book, I... I don't. I, I don't think this is probably too common for first-time authors, but I was actually approached by the publisher. Right. So, um, Thames and Hudson are putting together this series called the First Knowledge Series, which uh, it, it was originally a book a series of six books. Now there's a seventh, which is pretty exciting. Um, but it's a, it's a series of books on um, indigenous knowledge where each book focus on it focuses on a different area. Right. And so it started with a book called Songlines by Margot Neal and Lynn Kelly, which is just amazing. And uh, the series um, so far is just filled with authors who 
who are like oh, big role models of mine, like people mm. that inspired me to even launch Indigenuity where I was reading yep. their stuff and I was like, oh, I need to find out more about this, you know. Um, so, yeah, there, since unfortunately there's not a lot of people who can speak to Indigenous astronomy, I have become, I guess, an expert in the field, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. is uh, cool because um, I've always really loved books. And so when we were asked would we like to write one and would we like to work together? So specifically with Carly, I was like, excellent. Like this is, this um, is something that I would love to do because especially a lot of the times I do talks at the libraries, it's like the number one thing I'm asked is like, oh, this is a great talk. So do you have any books you recommend for our kids to read? <laughs> and I'm like, no. no, like I wish, I wish. But a lot of the stuff that we talk about is sort of gatekept in research papers yeah. or um, held by a community in oral traditions. Yep. So it's, it's not, the most accessible um the most accessible knowledge and so yeah the opportunity to be a part of such a wonderful series to write with someone that i really admire uh yeah i absolutely jumped on and i've learned a lot about writing a book <laughs> yeah and, and in terms of the sort of the view of indigenous astronomy i mean did you have to sort of travel around the country a bit to sort of i, I guess just put your finger on the pulse of how different parts of the community in the indigenous community see that and their different associations with that i mean how much involvement was there with you know beyond you two as authors with the sort of rest of the indigenous community so uh a lot of the which we, we do explain in the book as well a lot of the work that we um or yeah the work that we pull from is uh sort of contained within an, the archive so uh a lot of knowledge that we have it's either um come from community mm -hmm. over time uh, we have uh, a lot of our research group actively working with different communities across australia yep. and then also just a lot of it has been captured historically so since the time of invasion people right. have been trying to document knowledge down and th so that's something that carly and i have to work through which also presented new hurdles because unfortunately um in the way that things have been uh, marked down in the past mm -hmm. uh there tends to be quite a lot of um unfortunate racist rhetoric within these yep. uh, resources or uh, misconceptions because it's anthropologists putting down astronomy work and, you know, they <laughs> they hear like a red star and they're like, cool, cool, that's Mars. And, you know, oh, right. when we actually like look through this, like, especially like people in my research group, like Dr. Dwayne Harmaker, um, are looking through these resources like, well, this this story doesn't make any sense then because this wouldn't line up with Mars's behaviour. Right. And yeah. then we actually, you know, do 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 a bit of peeking yeah. down and figure out that uh, instead it's actually we're talking about Betelgeuse and its variability. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so no retrograde motion going on, but brightness no. up and down like a yo-yo. Yeah. yeah, so there's, there's a lot of misconceptions. <laughs> yeah. And also, so that's like the unfortunate consequence is that at times it's sort of, it was surprisingly heavy to write this book. Like it's not right. a it's not a heavy book. But us going through, um, you'd be surprised how distressing it is. It's a shame. There's like a lot of knowledge that I would love to know more about, but the um, the way it was captured originally was completely unethical or mm. the way it's written about is really disgusting. And it's sort of like, well, it's a shame because I would love to talk about these stories, but I don't want to acknowledge these authors. And so we've, we've also given examples of when that's occurred because yep. it's a shame when things haven't been done the right way, we're sort of in this weird space where we're trying to merge the indigenous and non-indigenous ways of knowing um, mm. and sort of coming together. So it's such a random tangent, but it is actually a, a thing that's not often discussed when talking about writing a book like this. Yeah, I mean, it must be deeply disturbing for you if you can't find another source for those same things and, you know, you, you know that's, that's information yeah. that's valuable, but... As you say, you, you don't want to give any credit to, to the way in which that was done. No. So you have to just leave it out. You know? Yeah, it is It is tough. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, it's because it's, especially when you're writing a book, they want to be able to. It's, it's sort of where the Western knowledge and the Indigenous knowledge clash. In a book, you want to be able mm. to um, uh, like verify every single sentence, essentially, like, like yep. to be able to say, okay, this is where that knowledge is pulled from. Yeah. So when you're yeah. working with community, <laughs> um, you're working with oral traditions. It's a shame when like the only credible source, apparently, the published source, happens yep. to be something that is culturally unsafe. So yeah. Yeah, and and not not knowing anything about the publisher in this case, I mean, yeah. how how does that process work in that sense as well? Because you know, many of our publishing houses are based on sort of Western traditions, which yeah. are, I, I suspect, in many regards, deeply problematic. I know I I personally work with a lot of Indigenous groups in a strategy sort of sense, and I often have to just say to myself, you know, that's not the way you're going to do this job. Like that's that's not going to work here. Yeah, and I tend to I tend to do a lot more listening than I would if I was working with um, non-Indigenous groups, right, you know, just tell them what to do because that's that's the world I, yeah. you know, I'm in and I know how that world works. Yeah. And so, you know, it often ends up being really rich and, and engaging material, but I, I really don't have a good feel for how that should come out and, yeah. you know, have to work hard to do that. So how does that work with the, the publisher? Have they got a, are you working with someone who has a really good understanding of how those two worlds connect? I, I, I think the, the key thing is working with someone who is aware of what they don't know and yep. just willing to learn. Yeah, so great. I've loved our team. So Tamsin Hudson, excellent publishers. And like the editors we had in particular, I'm um, working with Sally Heath and Sam Palfreyman. If you ever hear this, uh, shout out. Um, <laughs> but uh, they were like really excellent and understanding, open. Um, and we could talk to them about those concerns we're having along the way, um, talking about, you know, also sometimes, uh, for example, like wanting to talk about criticisms of the field, except yep. once again, like how do you reference that sort of stuff? And I know some of the conversations were things that were confidential with, for example, with, say, Carly and um, mm. members of the community. Yep. And so just trying to talk about how can we make sure that those voices aren't excluded because of the mm. way the Western system works. Yep. Um, and also we had uh, the whole series has been edited by Margot Neal, who is... A uh, really uh, staunch Aboriginal woman who has worked with the National Museum, um, a curator of the Seven Songlines exhibition, which was quite big at the National Museum a number of years ago. Um, so she as well, it's 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 the, along the way there's just Aboriginal voices involved. So by yep. the time it's come to us, which we're the fourth book in, uh, right. things honestly were pretty, pretty smooth. smooth. Yeah. yeah, look, that's yeah. great to hear. And in terms of the, the sort of the audience that you're looking for for the book, I mean, who is it sort of aimed at primarily? So uh, we wanted to make sure it was a resource that we were aiming for, like, say, 16 years and up and yep. their parents could enjoy. So maybe not something for the, the very young littlies just yet, uh, but we wanted it to be something um, that young people could be reading and understanding, so not being excluded by language. We didn't mm. want it to be too jargony. Yep. We've, we've done our best to talk about somehow uh, academia while also yeah, trying yeah. to make it accessible yep. to people who probably have no idea what the hell that is. Yep. Um, uh, but that's the audience that we're aiming for. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm... I'm very hopeful that uh, we've hit our mark with that. I, I can't wait to see like more and more feedback coming in because yep. it's, it's it's so weird working on like a <clears throat> it's sort of like writing an essay for uni, you yep. know, like you've spent like two years working on it though, and then, <laughs> and then waiting like, for the mark <laughs> exactly, and then like all your gra- like markers are the public, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you may not even hear uh, their response. So it's such a weird. I mean, I, I'd love thing. to know if there was some way, you know, if there's anyone listening who who can wine and dine someone from the the sort of curriculum boards of you know secondary education that can sort of say, okay, next year one of the books on the VCE syllabus is going to be this book. Yeah, you know, I mean that that's that's where you really want this to sort of start hitting home and and actually really um, having an impact on, on kids as they're coming through so that 
when they hear the term Indigenous astronomy, they don't they don't sort of I, I don't know what visuals they have of that, but yeah. you know I think I know for me you know you were the first person to to ever teach me anything about that, and and you know I think that I hope you're happy to hear that because that's yeah. like <laughs> feel some pressure. Um, you've been my tutor, but you know I remember thinking, geez, I have to get get you back on the, on the show, and then five minutes later you got your own show. Yeah. I'm thinking, well, okay, I missed the boat there, but you know that, that's great, you know, because you're actually able to to do some of that, and I think. As you say, like you're you're the person. There's not a lot of people around doing this, and yeah. and getting that into curriculums for schools and so forth would be would be lovely. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it's um I, that's like my main intention with this whole book is just education because I, I find it weird how um we are like it's something we should be really proud of, right? It's mm. Australia. This continent is home to the world's longest yeah. continuing culture. And it's on a scale that is absurd. Like I, yep. I've, yep. I've grown up with the numbers, so I'm like, yes, tens of thousands of years makes sense. Yeah. But then finding out how not common, like how uncommon that is around the world, yeah, is insane. Like it, it really has blown my mind. And so, then realizing that there is this strong history of science, like a really strong foundation of science in Aboriginal culture, how this oral record describes events that we would never be able to see, there is no mm. written record mm. of. It's stuff that I thought as a country we'd be so proud of. Yeah. You'd think it'd be something that would be absolutely screamed about in schools and everyone would be talking about it. It's something that we, it's so unique, it's world first, yeah. something everyone, everyone, Indigenous well, and non-Indigenous should feel that pride. Uh, absolutely. I remember when I was in my first year of uni, and I, my favourite subject was history of astronomy. That was, you know, I did physics, but you know, yeah, yeah. But in the arts faculty, they were teaching some really cool stuff. Yeah. History of astronomy, favourite subject, and they they had a scenario there for me where. I, I was thinking of people like Eudoxus and so forth. They were like 2,000 years ago. It seemed yeah. like forever, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and you must look at that and go, eh. No, I know. <laughs> I know. It's, it's crazy. And it's, as you said earlier at like the very start, we, um, we have this oral record. And then we also have like astronomical and like geological ways of dating it to. Yep. And yeah. we talk, I, I, was, I really wanted to impress that upon people as well. So there is like a, a subchapter dedicated to those extents yep. uh, in the book. Um, but tens of thousands of years, like descriptions of volcanic eruptions, which we know like 30,000 years yeah, plus yeah. ago in Victoria, and um, meteorite impacts where we hear stories about this fire falling from the skies in, uh, you know, sort of remote central areas. And then we can date those crater sites and find out that they're like 4,200 4, years old and yep. sea level rise is described. It's, it's, it really is crazy. So yeah. it's this very long um, oral record. And I think one of the things is we're just not used to trusting oral information. So yeah. I think, yeah, the, the whole book is just hopefully if we can get it in schools, if we can get it to young people, if we yep. can get it to people of all ages, just to make it a bit more normalised. Yeah. And, and it's the one thing that blew me away the last time we spoke was that that correlation between certain events that were tens of thousands of years old yeah. and, and the fact that, you know, to be frank, you know, to all, and I know there's a few of them, to our Northern Hemisphere listeners, you know, suck it, there's a Southern <laughs> Hemisphere sky as well and we know a lot more about that than you know about yours. So, you know, Tough. Um, yeah. <laughs> like in reality, that's true, right? We have Absolutely. a we have a much longer history, uh, astronomical history of the southern hemisphere sky than we do the northern northern hemisphere sky, and people don't talk about that ever. Yes, like, I I absolutely agree. We get this very beautiful view of the Milky Way as well down from yeah. the southern hemisphere, and those yeah. I, I sorry, not, like not to interrupt, but I, I absolutely agree. It's just it's mind blowing the stuff that we know. Like uh, one of the examples I highlight, it's a bit of research that's ongoing at UniMel. Or University of Melbourne at the moment, but talking about um, oral traditions which describe having a south celestial star. 
And so that's like yeah. in the northern hemisphere, they have this north, north the pol- sort of, yeah. Polaris, yeah. Polaris, the north Big star. <laughs> and it's like, well, we don't have one in the southern yeah, hemisphere, yeah. but that doesn't mean that we've never had one. Yeah. And so uh, the traditions that they're working with come from the first peoples of Tasmania, and it's talking about. Uh, this great southern star at the same time that we have uh, Tasmania connected to uh, mainland Australia via ice mass. Yep. And so it's really cool because you can, you can date all of that. You can find potential overlappings for when a certain tradition may have been born based on that information. Yeah. So I, it's, and, and that Phenomenal does bring stuff. back over 10,000 years. So now, we, we are running out of time because Stacey is excited because she she's got the segment later, which just got a lot shorter than she thought it was because we're really excited about I'm your so stuff. Sorry. No, no, don't apologize. Um, tell us where do people get the book and what is it called? So, uh, uh, the book is called uh, Astronomy Sky Country. It's by Carly Noon and myself. Um, you can find it on uh, most websites. I do really encourage buying locally. So any local bookstore, from what I've seen, it seems to be surprisingly everywhere, which is really cool. Excellent. So yeah, just just uh, look online or go in person. Yeah, support yep. local. And yes. you're going to chill out for a while at Triple R and then people will hear you back at one o'clock? For... Yes, I'll be back at one o'clock. We're going to be talking about some indigenous astronomy. So come along for a bit of a, a lesson in uh, space. <laughs> Fantastic. Crystal, thanks so much for coming back on the show. It's great to see you again and really, really uh, amazing to see that you've got your own show on Triple R. Well deserved. I think everyone who listens to you is just inspired and, and wants to learn more. So thanks Thank so much. You. Three, triple Stacey, over to you. Oh, thanks, Dr. Shane. So um, thank you for playing that song. So that was um, uh, the Decemberists uh, track called The Crane Wife 3, and it was from their 2006 album, The Crane Wife. And it really um, – I, I played that song the other day and my daughter was listening to it, and uh, her reaction to that song triggered uh, the idea for this story. So um, essentially what was happening is – um, my kids and I were out at a restaurant um, at Major Tom's in Kyneton. It's a live music venue, but they were playing really cool music. They will play this track. And my daughter was started listening to the music and she, this like really nice sort of trance-like state came across her face. She had a bit of a glint in her eye. She smiled and she said, oh, I think this is my favourite song from when I was a baby. And I was like blown away because um, – she was bang on. Like we used to listen to that song all the time around wow. the time that she was born. Um, I, I had it on CD, and so we were driving around a lot. And I was trying to put it asleep all the time as an infant, and um, and so she did. Probably in the first year of her life, heard a lot of that album and a lot of that song. And um, the other thing, and I hope she doesn't mind me saying this, she's you know a bit of a she's 11 years old, sort of going through this early onset teenage angst, so she's a little bit moody at times. But like her mood just really lifted, right? So she she um, you know just had this sort of really nice glow, and so something was clearly going on in her brain, like mm. triggering an old memory, and you know making her feel really you know lovely. So have have any of you experienced this? You know when you listen to a song and it triggers something deep yeah. inside your brain. Yeah, when I used to go swimming uh, as a kid, swimming lessons where I thought it was going to drown, Elton John's guess that what guess that's why they caught the blues was always <laughs> playing at the pool. I don't know why, and so now I'm trying to get my kids to have that same association. I play in the car when I take them to the pool. Yeah, Just messing with them. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, yeah it why not? With me. Yeah, as long as you're feeding them good stuff, Dr. Yeah, Shane. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anyway, there's been lots of um, – so I wanted to understand, like, what's the neurological sort of mm. um, pathophysiological sort of things going on in your brain when, when we listen to music. And so it's been explored by scientists over the years, and listening to music or playing musical instruments is thought to stimulate the brain in a way that's quite unlike other stimuli. So you break it down simply. You know, we've got sound waves going in, and they're sort of into our ear canal, and they get transmitted into electrical 
electrical signals going to the auditory nerve to the brain stem and then we reassemble that into something that we perceive as music but because music represents such a complex relationship between multiple notes pitch melody rhythm um you know it's um it's it's highlight it's uh, um activating so many different areas of of the brain um and there's some preliminary studies that have suggested that you know that there's quite um sort of neurochemical changes that occur in response to music um and it can reduce anxiety um, lower blood pressure, reduce pain, can improve your sleep quality and mood and things like that. So there's a few things that are happening. So you get increased blood flow and particularly what's lighting up in the brain is that um, sort of reward and reinforcement areas of the brain. Um, so particularly around sort of um, the area that is responsible for releasing dopamine. Um, so secondly, there's also all these other midbrain structures that light up, um, particularly those ones that are sort of opioid rich midbrain areas that are responsible for the down regulation of pain. Um, and then also it affects your, um, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal area. So that's, um, the sort of pathway responsible for regulating our stress and reducing cortisone. But then I wanted to sort of understand, well, what's, you know, what's this issue with memory? Like how does it Mm. dig into memory? Um, and the answer is a little bit more complex, uh, unfortunately, but in the literature, it's referred to as music evoked autobiographical memories. So meme, which is cool. Um, and so that's just like autobiographical memory is just memory that's sort of um, specific to life events that's happened in the past. And so there, that's a totally different area of the brain, the medial temporal lobe. And that's um, the part of the brain that plays a key role in establishing and retrieving memory. And that includes the hippocampus. And that's important for piecing together sights, smells, uh, and other contextual sort of parts of experiences, such as, you know, you know, your sounds and music and things like that. And they call it like the hub of autobiographical memory. And that's because um, that hippocampus sort of points um, serves as a kind of pointer uh, to other areas of the brain where the memories are stored and so there's not just one area of the brain where memories are stored it's sort of a distributed network across your cortex that sort of gray matter and i liken it to um like your cortex to those massive sort of compacticus um shelving units in oh, the yeah. library yep. you know those yep. right yep. <laughs> and you then, w- roll them out yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. but then the hippocampus is like the librarian and they're like pointing to where the memories might be stored and mm. then they might also help you like draw together all these other sort of um contextual details to support the memory so this is Probably the sort of what's happening is when you've got like highly emotional or memorable events, often accompanied by music, um, you're in a really highly aroused state. So you're taking in more information about the event. And so both the event and the emotive music that's being played enhances the encoding and the subsequent retrieval of the process. But in a similar vein, you know, what you're doing is that the formation of memories are like tightly linked to environmental context. And so researchers have shown, for example, that when you're teaching people new words or concepts, they present them as word sound pairs or word you know, picture pairs, different parts of the brain are engaged depending on whether it's accompanied by music or accompanied by pictures. So if you're learning a word that's linked to a sound, that would activate your auditory cortex. And if you're learning a word that's linked to a picture, that would activate your visual cortex. And so when we engage in the recall of those words, it's those same areas of the Mm. brain that are sort of high, you know, being activated again. Um, So anyway, so this is like one of the examples. um, So, you know, the music's linked to the event and the event's 
uh, linked to music. But it's a very, like, um, clearly, like, the interplay between those two uh, events is quite complex. And and there's still so many unknowns, but it's really fascinating sort of study of of science. Very cool stuff, Stacey. And I know that if I'm ever in the car and I hear the theme from this show, my hands look for buttons to push (laughs) and I freak out. (laughs) It's so After 30 years of broadcasting with the same theme, it's it's messed with me greatly. So, yeah. Anyway, thank you so much for that. Uh, Big thank you to our two guests today, Jeff and Crystal, for coming in. Thank you, Dr. Linden. Thanks, Dr. Shane. Good to see you. Dr. Ray, good to see you too. Good to see you. Folks, we're going to have to hand over – have to – we enjoy actually handing over to Matt Stedman and Cam, who are right next door to us in the next studio, ready to give you eat it for an hour. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Go-Go. Remember, science is everywhere. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Go-Go, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Go-Go's Twitter account or Facebook page.